Welcome to Lorica, the podcast of Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. St. Patrick's is a parish in the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese of North America, serving the Western Rite. Father Patrick is also the administrator of the Orthodox West. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. So we are reminded in our introit this morning. What child? What son? Well, the holy babe, born of the Blessed Virgin Mary, born in time without a father, born from eternity without a mother, son of God, son of Mary, our Savior, God in our flesh, Jesus Christ, the new man. Today, eight days after his human birth, we celebrate the circumcision of the holy child, at which time he also received his heavenly appointed name, Jesus, the Savior. In order to give due reverence and attention to both the circumcision and to the naming of Christ, we have another feast called the Feast of the Most Holy Name, which we will say Mass for tomorrow. And for those of you who are liturgical nerds, I'll add this extra little caveat. The Holy Name, the Feast of the Holy Name, would normally be celebrated today on the Sunday between Christmas and Epiphany, except for the fact that circumcision fell on Sunday this year, and so it gets transferred to tomorrow. The event we celebrate today, circumcision, (laughs) Well, it, uh, needless to say, runs counter to modern sensibilities. You bring this up to your friends and they say, you're celebrating the feast of what? Really? (laughs) Um, The Roman Catholics have discarded this feast altogether in their liturgical reforms as they've gotten with the times. But we still celebrate it, maybe even with a slight wince. Um, The circumcision of the God-child and Savior of the human race, Jesus Christ. This is, in fact, the Savior's first shedding of blood in his holy sacrifice for the remission of sins, for our redemption from iniquity, the curse, punishment, and death. How could we not stop and worship him on this most holy day? He did not need to undergo the suffering and humiliation of circumcision for his own sake. I mean, he was the lawgiver. He didn't need to subject himself to his own law, yet we needed him to come to where we are and rescue us. And so, as St. Paul says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. He also didn't need to be circumcised in order to be purified from sin. He, as God, conceived without a human father, had no stain or contagion of sin in his birth or in his conception. He was the perfect man, the new deified man. But he came to suffer, to offer himself a sacrifice for sin, to become a curse. And so he voluntarily subjected himself to this rite 
in his identification with us in our state of sin, just like he did when he died and shared in our mortality, not because he needed to die, but in order to rescue us from death. The venerable Bede puts it this way, the Son of God submitted to circumcision as decreed by the law. He who was without any stain of pollution did not reject the remedy by which the flesh of sin is made clean. In addition to this, his circumcision also joined him to Abraham's family, even though he is the creator of Abraham's family. Yet it was necessary and fitting that he should undergo the same rite of initiation into the covenant that he established so that he might save those who are under the same requirements. We are imitated to imitate Christ, we are instructed rather to imitate Christ in everything. And yet circumcision is not a Christian rite. In fact, Paul says that if we be circumcised according to the Jewish law, then Christ profits us nothing. And that if we subject ourselves to circumcision as a Jewish rite, then we are debtors to the whole law and Christ is of no effect to us. He says, in fact, if you do this, you have fallen from grace. Now, as Paul's writing this, he's dealing with that first heresy in the church, the heresy of the Judaizers, who would require Gentile Christians to be circumcised. We are to imitate Christ in everything, but we are not to imitate him in the rite of circumcision as a religious rite. That is the shadow of the reality. And what is the reality that has now come? You know, Christ was circumcised as a Jew, but then he was baptized later on. I suppose we could say he was circumcised as a Jew and he was baptized, maybe tongue-in-cheek, as a Christian. Jesus, the first Christian. Through his baptism, he established the initiation rite of the new covenant, which is for us the true circumcision. Baptism is our circumcision, and it accomplishes the fullness and reality to which the old covenant Jewish circumcision pointed. Christ in his human person and his human life bridged the old and the new. He subjected himself to the old and then he replaced it with the new. St. Ambrose teaches us saying, since the price has been paid for all after Christ suffered, there is no need for the blood of each individual to be shed by circumcision. So circumcision gives way to baptism. And in our baptism, we are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, as St. Paul says, the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. We are buried with him in baptism. And we being dead in our sins and the uncircumcision of our flesh, he hath quickened together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, blotting them out, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances against us. Now, another important reason that the church emphasizes uh, the circumcision of Jesus has to do with proving that Jesus became a real human. One of us who truly suffered in our flesh as we suffer. You know, there were many, many heresies, not just one or two. There were many heresies in the early church which denied the real humanity of Jesus and which denied that he truly suffered as God in flesh. They said he was a phantom or he didn't have a real body. 
And that he didn't truly suffer in the body because, you know, this is just impossible for God to do. Just too scandalous to believe such a thing. But even as a baby, he suffered and he shed his blood. His loving, tender mother held him, held him with great compassion. He cried. <laughs> he cried from the pain of his circumcision, rest assured. And she cried too, as a tender mother would. She cried, holding him for the pain of her son as he was cut with a stone knife. Her very son, who was also named on this day with his human and divine name, Jesus. Bernard says, concerning the true humanity of Jesus, not even a shadow of mistrust can then exist, for after all, he is my own flesh. So that first bleeding at his circumcision guarantees his humanity. Many of the fathers of the church point to this and emphasize this. That is his credential, proof, incontrovertible, that the incarnation was real and he is human. But more important, I think, than even proving his humanity, the shedding of his blood as an infant is the very first installment of his redemptive sacrifice. It's been pointed out by some that there are Perhaps five primary effusions of the precious blood of our Savior. First we have the circumcision. And then the droplets of blood from his brow and the agony in the garden. And then the beatings that he suffered and the crown of thorns. And then the nailing to the cross. And finally, the fifth, the piercing of his side with the spear. The first and the last shedding of his blood, the circumcision, and the piercing of his side with the spear... Both are related. They're sort of bookends to all of it. And they relate to the new race made, remade in man, regenerated in baptism. Circumcision takes place in the generative part of the body, and it is fulfilled of baptism. It is the shadow of baptism, which is the new birth. At his piercing, the blood and water flowed from his side, from his heart, from the new Adam and produced the new Eve, the bride of Christ, a new creation. And we understand the water that flowed to be regenerative, the regenerative water of baptism. Milton actually wrote a little sonnet on the circumcision, and he makes this beautiful connection between the circumcision and the piercing of the side. He says, He that dwelt above, high throned in secret bliss, for us, frail dust, emptied his glory, even to nakedness. And seals obedience first with wounding smart this day. But all oh, ere long, huge pangs and strong will pierce more near his heart. All of this to say that Christ's sacrificial and redemptive death are completely enfolded in his birth. And even in the first shedding of his blood on this day, when the holy babe was but eight years old. Bernard also said this, already diminished by assuming our flesh, Christ further lessens himself by receiving the circumcision. God's son had abased himself one degree beneath the angels in taking our human nature. And this day, by accepting the remedy for our corruption, he descends a thousand times lower still. This is God's love for us, 
on display on this great feast when we celebrate the shedding of blood, the circumcision of the holy babe. His great love for us will reach its greatest deep and its highest height when he descends into hell and then to majesty. Christ is born. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You have been listening to Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. This has been a production of the Orthodox West.